0: Hey, guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware in downtown Apples. I've been talking about Leon Tailoring for nearly 20 years now. That's right, 20 years I've been talking about the good folks at Leon Tailoring. Whether it's Larry, Norm, Kim, Judy, whether it's their ready-made items, whether it's their custom-made items, or whether it's their tailor-made items, you can trust Leon Tailoring. Leon Tailoring, they've been great folks. They've been around for more than 100 years and some change. I've only been talking about them for 20, but trust me, head over to Leon Tailoring, and they'll take care of you, just like they've taken care of me for the past two decades. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware in downtown town indianapolis well the economy is always in the news but is it good or is it bad or what exactly is going on these days we've got uh, record low unemployment but still inflation is a uh, persistent problem so join us in the news i talk about that and some other things as well economics related is our good friend michael hicks uh professor at State university mike my friend always good chat with you thank you very much for being with us no you love to be with you ah uh, thank you uh so let's start my friend um uh, how is the economy doing overall
1: well um it's we're in a uh, a difficult time to interpret. So let's go through what you just said. Labor markets are extraordinarily tight. Wage growth has been robust for those in the lower quintile of earnings. So high school kids, college kids, uh, people just in the labor market are seeing wage increases faster than inflation, uh, which is very different from what we've seen over the past 30 years. So I think most Americans say that's a good thing. These are people who have really not enjoyed in the growth that the rest of us have. And so that's a good thing. Inflation is slowing. It's still around. It's still painful. We still see occasional jumps. In prices, and the same time we see, you know, for example, petroleum right now, uh, filling up the pickup truck is painful. But but I've got two big boys to feed at home, and so the the drop in egg prices uh, sort of plays off that. In general, we're in 11 straight months of declining inflation, and so if you look at core, it's about. Four and a half percent. If you strip out even the more basic uh, stable numbers, they're down to, for per- like goods inflation's down to the Fed target of two to two and a half percent. So there's not a lot of pressure for them to raise rates again. But because they've raised rates substantially over the past uh, 18 plus months, we're beginning to see a drag on other sectors of the economy, new housing starts, the auto. You know, auto sales maybe aren't as fast as we expect them to be. RV sales are, you know, really suffering. So it's a sort of mixed economy right now.
0: It's interesting you bring that up because uh, a lot of people talk about they still can't find work or still can't find employment. My thing is, employers are just dying to find, you know, qualified employees. I remember a story my wife, uh, who's a massage therapist, was working on a patient one day and the patient actually offered her a job. My wife said, I don't, I'm not having the expertise in that field. So the woman said, I can teach you the expertise but i can't teach people to have work ethic which you have
1: right i mean that's certainly a problem but you know i also know i have a couple kids home for, for college in the summer um you know they're one's working the other one's still bouncing around looking for a job a lot of employers aren't willing to pick up somebody for a few months that may turn into a permanent job um you know they the frictions that exist in labor markets are, are exacerbating some of this Uh, I will say that the the wages for high school kids have softened a little bit, Um, and so uh, I think there are going to be maybe not as many of that 16- to 24-year-old crowd in labor markets in the fall. More will be going back to school. Uh, you know, w- w- work ethic is a challenge. It's always a challenge. Uh, it's not a new complaint. Uh, you can pick up any paper from the 1890s and see complaints about the work ethic of uh, young people at the time. So I don't think this marks this as curmudgeons, but there are different labor market expectations and experiences for young people today, particularly around social media and how you communicate on the phone and the sort of things that give
0: office managers a fit today. It's interesting to talk about that because did you just write a column about the importance of summer jobs?
1: Yeah, I think summer jobs are super important. Um, you know, when I was a kid, so I'm, I'm 60, so I was a kid in the late 70s, early 80s, um, did lots of summer jobs, uh, worked a little bit during the school year. Everybody had a job in the summer. It was ubiquitous. That's not the case nowadays. If you're uh, trying to be a Division One athlete, your summers are probably absorbed by athletics, um, if you want to be a really competitive, which is a lot more people trying to do that than actually are going to, you know, so there, are, if you're a competitive athlete in high school, so as many as one in five or one in four high school kids are really busy with athletics over the summer. It's more common to take summer school classes than I was a kid. Um, and so those sorts of things cut down on the available supply of people working. Um, and, and for people who aren't doing those things, the, the summer employment really offers the opportunity to learn those skills, how to interact with adults, how to interact with customers, how to complete tasks that have been explained to you, the sort of things that are part of every job but some level of understanding needs to come with adulthood that not every young adult has yet.
0: Our guest on the program today is our good friend Mike Hicks. Mike Hicks is a professor of uh, Ball State University in economics, and we're going to talk about uh, the economy both national and up uh, here in the state of Indiana. Uh, Mike, uh, let me ask you, uh, we just had a big fight over the debt ceiling. Uh, looks like lawmakers, they, they, the president, the Congress, they reached an agreement. Uh, does that really matter in this, econ- in this economic universe these days to, to regular people?
1: Yeah, I think it does, but it doesn't matter in the short run. So I think every American ought to be looking down the road and saying, look, you know, what we're experiencing, is, as Governor Holcomb wrote in his column last week, is a dysfunctional federal government. I mean, if you're elected to Congress and grandstanding is your job rather than legislating, you're not going to make uh, have solutions to questions like, you know, what should be the optimal tax rate? What should be the optimal amount of spending given where we are? Um, you know, if some level of debt makes sense. We're building things that are going to last for generations. We're, you know, trying to support democracy that lasts for generations. Generations ought to pay for that. Next generation shouldn't be paying for my retirement. And so I think those sorts of very practical matters have to be solved, and they have to be solved by people in Congress who are awarded by working together. And that's what I think Governor Holcomb said. So in the short run, not a problem. In the long run, um, you know, I could see a, a pretty, pretty short order us spending you know twenty cents on every tax dollar simply to service the debt to allow baby boomers and uh, Gen Xers to retire early, to have much more abundant health care than their predecessors. All things that we might think are good, but we have to remember there we don't live in a limitless, boundless world. There are constraints. And scarcity.
0: Which, by the way, let me ask you, my friend, what are we going to do to to, to get our federal budget under control? Because a good chunk of that uh, is entitlements. It's Social Security, it's Medicaid, it's Medicare, and a lot of it you just can't touch. And uh, no one wants to touch defense and between interest on the debt. I want to say what, what we consider to actually be the federal government is only about 15 percent of discretionary spending.
1: That's right. I think it's important to know that discretionary spending alone doesn't really – that's just uh, – uh, if we cut all of that, if we got rid of the Navy – if we got rid of the Marine Corps, we're still going to run a deficit, right? So it really comes down to Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, and uh, federal government, military retirement, and veterans' health care. Those things right there are cost more than all the taxes we're collecting. So we are, and this makes me sort of sick in my stomach, facing a substantial requirement for increased taxes. And at the same time, we're going to have to think about, in the long run, how do we change benefit structures? If you know, Social Security was designed in 1967, when the median lifespan was in the late 50s, and so most people didn't live to be 65 in 1937. People that that year, fewer than half the people born 65 years earlier were still alive. Today, the lifespan is going to be pushing 80 for people who are now working. Uh, most likely lifespan is going to be close to 90. You know, for my children in their 20s, teens and 20s, and so we need to think about them working longer. We need to think about, in an honest way, a blended retirement system where the government guarantees parts of it, but individuals get to to put part of it into an account that they hold, um, and and we're going to have to tax more earnings over time, uh, and maybe change the the cap on. Have some sort of limits on benefits or recoup some of that through extra taxation. So, you know, I don't know how much Elon Musk might need Social Security. He, he he will have earned it, and so he's going to get paid for it, but we're going to have to think about how we do that structure. And at the same time, we have other challenges. We have infrastructure that needs to be maintained, um, we have uh, emerging international threats that require expensive armed forces. And so, uh, you know, we, we we have to have a Congress that's going to ch- make take those challenges. And the only sort of objection that I have to the discussion around this is that we think that the answer is clear fiscal restrictions like we have, you know, very low taxes, very little spending in Indiana. Sometimes all that does is build up deficits in other places. Uh, we had a hollow army, for example, in 1980. We had cut spending so much in the military that we were actually probably unable to prosecute a war against the Soviet Union if we needed to. So we've got to be very cautious that cutting spending doesn't leave us uh, a sort of deficit somewhere else in infrastructure or national security.
0: Our guest on the program today is our good friend Michael Hicks. Michael is a professor of economics at Ball State University, so we're talking about the economy, uh, both at the national level and here uh, in Indiana. Uh, Michael, how would you say rate Indiana's economy? How are we doing specifically here in the in the Hoosier State?
1: The last couple of years have been the best we've had in 20, 30 years um Indiana recovered very well coming out of covid we're a manufacturing intensive state and us consumption shifted away from going to disney world and going to movies to uh, buying things redoing your patio and so we really bought more things and as we bought more things that generated a considerable growth in manufacturing employment now that peaked about a year ago so we're we're down from where we were uh, but we really recovered well it's really the you know, long term prognosis is a challenge much of the growth in indiana has has come in you know uh, better paying jobs um college college oriented jobs and we're out of those sorts of workers and so b- because indiana is now producing fewer college graduates not only in absolute terms but as a share of the population that we did say, 10 years ago, uh, we're now really going to be stretched to see the economy expand in the coming decade or so. So that's the, you know, we've had a couple of good years coming out of COVID, but the longer term prospects are, are not anywhere nearly as optimistic.
0: Yeah, because I was going to ask you, because I realize we have a, a worker shortage here in Indiana, and we're always announcing new jobs. My question has always been, uh, do we have the skilled workforce to do these jobs?
1: No, we really don't. Um, and And, you know, the... Uh, when we see these jobs announcements, which everybody likes to see, frankly, all they're doing is going to be scalping workers from other employers. And so uh, when you think about the new Eli-, Eli Lilly plant in Lebanon, that's just going to pull primarily people for who would have otherwise found jobs somewhere else. The new electrical vehicle plant uh, in South Bend is not going to generate net employment growth. In South Bend, it's going to move employees from one manufacturing industry in that region, probably a lot that are traveling to Elkhart for RVs, and they'll be making electric vehicles, uh, batteries there in South Bend. So a lot of the economic development announcements really uh, simply move workers around. And the challenge is always in the long term, it's not the demand for workers that matters, it's the supply. Businesses will go where they can find the workers that they need, and ironically, if, if, if you know businesses that can't find enough high school graduates to drive trucks or to do, um, you know, manufacturing assembly, two very you know good professions. Um, they'll complain to the state government. They'll go to DWD, they'll complain to their legislature. Or somebody who can't find enough chemical engineers just goes to where they are. They don't complain to anybody about them. And so I think we're really living in an environment where we get bad signals about the labor uh, you know, demand and supply because we're only listening to a very small, very narrow set of employers. And, in fact, almost all the economic growth nationally is coming in with those higher-skilled, higher, higher uh, better-educated workers. So I think that's the fundamental point that needs to be faced by Indiana policymakers and, and, and taxpayers as well.
0: Which kind of makes me wonder, my friend, and like I said, I know this is probably more of an education question than an economics question, but, heck, you and I both teach we're in education. What is it about Indiana that has such a, a large percentage of the workforce that's unskilled?
1: Yeah. We do have a very long manufacturing legacy. And so that manufacturing legacy is very different from, say, where I grew up in in Virginia, which, uh, you know, Virginia in 1960 was a pretty poor state, much poorer than Indiana, for example. And so uh, those states made transitions into the modern economy, while Indiana continued. And I think in many places it continues to think, oh, gosh, prosperity is just one more factory or branch plant away. And when, in fact, those factories as branch plants are going to bring fewer and fewer jobs as they become more automated and, and more technically uh, rigorous, the types of jobs that they're, they're going to demand are going to be more college graduates. So we have, I think, a a culture that doesn't really understand what's going on and too much political emphasis on the non-college jobs. I'm always disappointed when I hear people say, you know, you can make a great living in in the trades. That's true, of course. Trades is a great job. Being a plumber, a welder is fine, a carpenter. fact of the matter is there are fewer skilled tradesmen in Indiana right now than there are high school graduates this year over the last two weeks who have no post-secondary plans. So we cannot absorb the number of people who are leaving college with no post-secondary plans into the trades. They're just not enough. We might be able to pick up, 5% 5% of them each year, but that is it. And so what we really need to do is be telling people you've got to be pursuing post-secondary schooling. It doesn't have to be economics. It doesn't have to be journalism or the law. It has to be something, because that brain is the is what you need to to be able to deploy for the next 50 years to pay off my Social Security and yours.
0: Michael Hicks with us for a few more minutes on the program today. Michael is an economics professor at Ball State University, so we're just getting caught up on Indiana's economy. Uh, Mike, you talked about uh, automation and AI. How is that going to impact uh, the future of work here uh, in Indiana and the country nationwide?
1: Well, you know, AI, uh, and you look at ChatGPT, ChatGPT4, is going to make, just like every other type of technology, routine sort of low-skilled jobs, Redundant. So, if your job is to copy edit somebody's not very good weekly column, you're probably in trouble because ChatGPT can fix that for you. In the same way that the um, you know large language models embedded in Microsoft Word could fix some of those. Um, if you are writing. Uh, you know, uh, copy editing material for a political campaign, it's easy to say, write me a political campaign with these four things in GPT and they'll write you a a quick speech. The more complex tasks, uh, and so if you're not really smart, you're not really good at that, and you only have a few skills, uh, then chat GPT is not your friend. In the same way that if you really couldn't do very much work, you had to do one very repeat, redundant work in a factory, um, that uh, robotics was your was your enemy as well uh, For people who are able to adapt Who are better educated Who can ex- use this to make themselves more productive It's a real opportunity we don't, We'll never run out of jobs Until we run out of people Right? And so as long as there's people willing to work We'll have jobs The question is What would those jobs look like? And so and really, the the AI, just like digital or robotics, favors better educated workers who can use those technologies to complement their work, and it really clobbers people whose work is substituted for that
0: technology. It's like an, uh, an old high school teacher of mine said like almost 40 years ago, the future belongs to those who can critically think.
1: Yes, and the the point that I think is also worth, Mentioning we seem not to think about because we put everything in the context of our youth is the life expectancy of somebody born in 2000 in real realistically could be hundred years. About half of the people born in the United States in 2000 are likely to be alive in 2100. And those of us who were born in, in 1900, only about half would be alive in 1950. And so the vast expansion in in lifespan means that more time and investment in education is going to yield higher returns and the discussion about kids my kids age in their 20s having to work to 70 that's what I tell them I say son pick wisely stay in school as long as you can you're going to have to work to 70 and there's going to be technologies you can't envision in that life in that lifespan of work and so you better be there learning how to learn and that's you that advice, from that high school teacher 40 years ago is precisely correct.
0: All right. Well, our guest on the program today has been our good friend Michael Hicks, professor of economics at Ball State University. just talking at the National and State Economies and Jobs and Workforce and Education. So, Michael, my friend, always good to chat with you. Thank you very much. Don't be a stranger. Thank you. Have a good summer.